Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I'm Jeremy Heiner. And I'm Sas Elisha. And we are so excited to bring you Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Jeremy and I are very passionate about education. In these episodes, we're going to talk about clinical anesthesia topics. We'll talk about case management, pharmacology, critical events, and the most up-to-date topics in a power-packed and very concise episode. So get ready, take some deep breaths to pre-oxygenate yourself, because it's go time. It's go time. We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks, including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession. Hello, everyone. Jeremy and I are going to be starting to do our case series, and our case series is going to be specific to either a surgical procedure or a particular pathology. And what we're going to start out doing and talking about are surgical procedures and pathology related to the endocrine system. And our first case is study is going to be on what, Jeremy? Thyroidectomy. Thyroidectomy. Let's talk about the essentials. So, Jeremy, talk to me about one of the tenets of thyroid surgery, and that is airway management, your specialty. Uh, I love, you know, I love talking about airway management. And uh, again, we've mentioned this before. We want to bring you very concise, power-packed episodes. So that's what we're going to do here. With thyroidectomy, you've got to be concerned about the airway. It's all about a tumor. If they're taking out the thyroid, usually there's a problem with that thyroid and there could be a laryngeal tumor or a tumor that is impacting the laryngeal cage in some way or fashion. So first and foremost, if I'm taking care of a patient with thyroidectomy or who's going to go and have a thyroidectomy, I'm automatically gonna be thinking that there is some impingement on the larynx. So right off the bat, I'm going to be thinking I need a video scope, some kind of video scope. And we're going to talk about this in a future episode, but there is a technique that uses both a video laryngoscope and a flexible intubating endoscope, previously known as a fiber optic scope. And 
we like to call it here at the Beyond the Mask, well, Jeremy and Sass like to, likes to call it Wi-Fi or video laryngoscopy inclusive flexible intubation. So that's using two video airway adjuncts to be able to see where you're going and place an endotracheal tube within the laryngeal space, within, between the, lo- the vocal cords. So that's great. And so talk to me about how you would consider this person to be significantly difficult. You're in the pre-op area. What are things that you look for? That's a great question. So number one, I'm going to do my standard airway examination. I'm going to have them open their mouth. I'm going to look at their malum potty score. And, and usually that's that's going to be above the larynx. It's going to be super laryngeal. So really, there's not a lot that's going to make me determine whether I need to use a video laryngoscope, a flexible intubating device, or even that Wi-Fi combined technique. But where what's going to really influence what airway technique I use is when I palpate down around the neck. I'm going to ask the patient, I'm going to palpate around the neck, I'm going to palpate the thyroid cartilage, the laryngeal cage, and then I'm going to ask the patient specific questions. For example, when if the patient lies flat, do they have difficulty breathing? I'm going to ask the patient to talk and ask them if there's been a change in the quality of their voice. Have they ever had a surgical procedure on their larynx and was that difficult? Have they ever had a difficult intubation? So I'm going to take all of those factors into account. And here's the other thing. I'm going to look in the chart and I'm going to look for any radiology study because most probably they've had some kind of CAT scan done on their thyroid and on their larynx. And I want to see if there's any pathology that is impinging on that laryngeal space and affecting the laryngeal cage. Okay, so to sum up airway management for a thyroidectomy, Number one, I'm going to do a very thorough airway exam. Number two, I'm going to look at the chart for any radiology studies. And then number three, I'm going to talk to the patient, see if there's any changes with quality of voice, breathing, anything like that. And most likely, I'm going to use some kind of video-assisted intubation, whether that be video laryngoscopy or flexible video intubation or a combination of video laryngoscopy inclusive flexible intubation, otherwise known as Wi-Fi. All right, Sass, now that we've talked about airway management for thyroidectomy, how about preoperative pharmacological management? Yeah, good, good question. So what is an endocrinologist going to put a patient on with hyperthyroidism? Um, What may you expect to see when they come to you in terms of pharmacologic management on the chart. So all of the medications related to what an endocrinologist is prescribing is either going to do one of two things. It's either meant to decrease the amount of circulating thyroid hormone, or it's also going to help decrease the conversion of T4 to T3. And let me describe that really quickly. So T4 is then metabolized in the liver to T3. T4 has four times the potency in terms of thyroid hormone activity as compared to T4. So therefore, decreasing that conversion from T4 to T3 is desirable. 
Let's go to one of the first drug classes. It's a thioamide drug class. And the major thioamide is called PTU or propylthiouracil. So you may see a patient on that. The next drug, a, a mainstay for the treatment of hyperthyroidism is oral potassium iodide or sodium iodide. Oral potassium iodide, you may remember from nursing school, is also called Lugol solution. Beta blockers are also prescribed at, depending on the patient. Beta blockers will not only help with the hyperdynamic response from th excessive thyroid hormone, but also decreases that conversion in the liver from T4 to T3. And then lastly, corticosteroids are also desirable. All right, Sass, that was fantastic. So a couple follow-up questions. In terms of the corticosteroid, what corticosteroid should we be considering? Really, any corticosteroid could be used, but hydrocortisone is the one that is recommended. All right, and beta blocker. Beta blockade is very important in these patients after they have that PTU in place. What kind of beta blocker should we can? So the beta blocker that is most commonly described in the textbooks is Inderol. The reason is, is because it has a significantly long half-life. And that is a good question um, that may be on the NCE exam for students. Oh, I love that. I, I love highlighting things that might be on the NCE exam or even uh, students' exams while they're in their anesthesia program. So that's Inderol or Propranolol. That's right. And that's in the textbooks. All right, Sass. Now, we've talked about preoperative pharmacology for patients who are undergoing a thyroid a thyroidectomy because of thyroid pathology. Now, talk to me a little bit about thyroid tests. What about preoperative thyroid tests? Yeah, so what we always want to do is have the patient be, and the term is euthyroid. So normal T3, normal T4, and normal TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone levels. With the combination of medicine, this should be achievable to be euthyroid. One thing I do want to point out, there are case studies in the literature that suggests that someone can have, who is hyperthyroid, someone can have thyroid storm despite having normal T4, T3, and TSH levels. That to me sounds crazy, that a patient can experience thyroid storm despite having essentially a euthyroid. Yeah, and one of the theories as to why this is is because thyroid hormone is so unbelievably bound to plasma proteins. So just because the level at a particular time is normal, the amount that is bound to plasma proteins can be increased and someone still can develop thyroid storm. Okay, well that's good to know. And luckily thyroid storm is really rare, but definitely something to keep in mind. Very rare, thank goodness. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. 
That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com or call them at 504-394-6557. Okay, SAS, now let's talk about hemodynamics. So a patient's hemodynamics uh, during a thyroidectomy. What, what should we keep in mind? Yeah, so if they truly are rendered euthyroid, you can expect hemodynamics to be you know, as normal as any other patient. However, if someone is not euthyroid, thyroid hormone increases metabolic rate. So increased amount of thyroid hormone is going to cause the potential for tachycardia and the potential for hypermetabolism and also hypertension. Realizing that most of these patients, the most common patient having thyroid surgery is somewhere as a female, somewhere between 20 to 40 years old. So being young, and I can say that as an older person, um, being young, as we know, younger people have significant anesthetic requirements. In addition to that, because of the nature of the surgery and where it is, and the surgeon's going to be in the airway around the neck, that is going to significantly increase the amount of stimulation. So with all of these three factors, the potential for increased thyroid hormone, significant physiologic stimulation, and a younger person, the anesthetic requirements are very many times increased. Okay, so you're thinking definitely above one MAC. Possibly, yes. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk about the endotracheal tube that is frequently used for thyroid surgery, and that is the NIM tube. Yeah, and the NIM stands for Nerve Integrity Monitor. So that is the tube that we're going to be using uh, for essentially because we're, we're helping the surgeon, the ENT surgeon, protect the recurrent laryngeal nerve. So we're not going to be using neuromus- neuromuscular blockade on these cases. That's the a very important anesthetic consideration, not to use neuromuscular blockade on these cases so that the surgeon can monitor the integrity of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And really other things to consider in addition to the absence of neuromuscular blockade, we really shouldn't be using an LTA, so laryngeal tracheal anesthesia, so don't squirt any lidocaine down on the vocal cords. In addition, don't put any lidocaine jelly on the end of the endotracheal tube to lubricate it. Instead, just use Surgi Lube. So essentially, we want intact neuromuscular function. All right, so now let's talk about the placement of the NIM tube. We want to confirm that the electrodes are placed after correctly after endotracheal intubation. And a lot of times we need to involve the ENT surgeon in this to make sure that they're comfortable with that placement because adjustments may need to be made. But essentially those electrodes need to be right on the vocal cords. All right, now uh, earlier I mentioned with regards to airway management that it's pretty common to use video laryngoscopy. And this is very helpful because the entire surgical team can see where that NIM tube is placed. One thing I did neglect to mention earlier, and this is in terms of airway management, and just to be on the very safe side, if you have extreme pathology that is displacing the laryngeal cage so that it looks different than any other, than a normal laryngeal uh, cage should look, normal uh, vocal cords should look like, then 
let's look at plan D. And plan D for me is always cricothyrotomy. So set up for a cricothyrotomy. Just have it ready in the event you ever have to go there. Let's chase away all the bad juju and have it ready to go. Okay, now to finish up with the NIM tube placement, sometimes a patient may need to be, may need to remain intubated after a thyroidectomy. So in those cases, the NIM tube really should be removed and replaced with a standard endotracheal tube. So if that's the case, it's very easy to use a tube exchanger. So place that tube exchanger through the NIM tube, remove the NIM tube, and place a standard endotracheal tube. Now one consideration that we, sh we as anesthesia providers should be aware of is what happens if during a case there's an increase in peak airway pressures. If that, if that happens to you during a thyroidectomy, you have to start thinking about differential diagnosis. And some things to rule out would be endotracheal tube migration, bronchospasm, and even an obstruction of the endotracheal tube. So what do we do? Well, one, we could simply retract the endotracheal tube a little bit. Of course, we're gonna to listen to the lungs to see if there's any lung pathology going on. And because the NIM tube is so rubbery and the, the endotracheal tube cuff of the NIM tube, when it's inflated, it's possible that the cuff, the endotracheal tube cuff, could actually protrude over the distal end of the endotracheal tube causing an obstruction. So what's the fix? Simply remove one to two milliliters of air and see if that fixes the problem and decreases your peak inspiratory pressures. Okay, Sass, now we're talking about thyroidectomy, so we have to talk about thyroid storm. Can tell us, tell our listeners what they should look for in terms of thyroid storm. Yeah, so a couple things about it. As you mentioned earlier, Thank goodness, it's very, very, very rare. But if it happens, it certainly can be life-threatening. This is a classic board question or test question in school. When is it most likely for a patient having thyroid surgery? When is it most likely for them to develop thyroid storm? And that would be 6 to 18 hours post-operatively. The rationale as to why I just described earlier, the thyroid is gone. It's sitting in paths somewhere. So, however, there are thyroid hormones still circulating in the body bound to plasma proteins. So it is still a possibility. What are signs and symptoms of thyroid storm? What does thyroid hormone do? It increases metabolic rate. So all of the signs and symptoms are associated with increased metabolic rate, such as tachycardia, hypertension, hyperthermia, and the onset of dysrhythmias. Does that sound like any other thing to you? Any other kind of pathologic process? That sounds like so many things. Tachycardia, hypertension, hyperthermia, dysrhythmia. So if you're thinking it could look like MH, the answer is absolutely yes. Now, what would you do if it wasn't a patient having a thyroidectomy, however, you had these signs and symptoms and you couldn't differentiate between malignant hyperthermia and thyroid storm. My suggestion, you would call M-House, and we will do a podcast on that in the future. But what the recommendation is, is to treat with dantrolene and then to rule out. If dantrolene works, 
you have a situation where you have MH. If dantrolene does nothing, it is not MH and could be some other hypermetabolic process. How do you treat thyroid storm? So we already talked about the medications um, above, such as PTU, uh, potassium iodide, which is given orally, and those can be given and are recommended to be given down an NG tube as the patient's anesthetized. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Jeremy, now we're at the end of the case and the patient's spontaneously breathing and we need to wake them up and extubate them. And we know that ENT surgeons in this case absolutely hate when their patients buck for the possibility of bleeding externally and internally. Can you tell us about, you know, talk a little bit about deep versus awake uh, extubation and what are some things that you can do to mitigate bucking if you choose to wake them up while they're awake. Yeah, so uh, I, I would guess that the majority of anesthesia providers are gonna feel more comfortable waking this patient up. And I, I'm, I'm in that group as well. So there are pros and cons to both deep and awake extubation in patients who have undergone a thyroidectomy. So the biggest pro, the biggest uh, thing that uh, we we would the biggest reason we would want to extubate somebody a deep who's had a thyroidectomy is simply because they won't buck they won't buck but there are several disadvantages of this of extubating a patient who has literally just had throat surgery extubating them deep a major disadvantage would be airway edema that maybe may not even be recognized at this point. In addition, the patient could have a laryngospasm. They could aspirate because they don't have control of the, the laryngeal reflexes. So I think that's why the majority of anesthesia providers would be in more in favor of extubating this patient awake. The benefit of extubating this patient awake, they can protect their airway and they can breathe spontaneously. But the big problem, and you mentioned it, SAS, ENT surgeons, they don't like when their patients buck uh, after they've had throat surgery or for a thyroidectomy. So how can we help a patient buck less when we're extubating them awake? There are several medications we can give. We can give IV lidocaine. We can give IV dexmedetomidine or IV propofol or even a combination of these in low doses. So that's something that you should consider when emerging and extubating a patient who's had a thyroidectomy in more of an awake state. Okay, Sass, so we've made it through this case, um, but maybe not quite. How about post-operative? Are there some things that we should be looking at or looking out for with regards to this patient post-operatively? Yeah, so there are a number of post-operative complications that occur. So let's just uh, do them in order. Uh, the first one, as we've already talked about, is the potential for thyroid storm. Next, there's always the possibility of recurrent laryngeal nerve damage. Um, it's very rare, especially if you're using a NIM tube. And even with a NIM tube, since the incidence is so rare, um, it doesn't happen that often. However, and this is a classic test question, board question, 
what happens if there is unilateral damage to one recurrent laryngeal nerve and usually the symptom is hoarseness yep uh, that's what i was going to say hoarseness but sass what about bilateral recurrent laryngeal nerve damage exactly. what's the symptom yeah exactly so the symptoms could be the inability to speak also respiratory arrest and complete respiratory collapse so it's unlikely who is most likely to develop RLN damage. It's someone that has really bad cancer where all the anatomy is skewed. That's much more likely to happen. But again, the incidence is pretty rare. And a patient would likely be striderous in that situation as well, right? Exactly. Exactly. Next, we have hematoma formation. We know that the neck is very vascular. Patients are waking up, their blood pressure is coming up, and therefore there's the possibility to bleed. Let's talk about what happens if someone develops a hematoma. So here's the academic answer for the NCE and also for your exams. You have a patient who's having respiratory distress. They have an obvious hematoma in their neck. What do you do? The answer is call the surgeon to evacuate the hematoma and then manage the airway. The rationale for that is because if the hematoma is significant, you are wasting time trying to manage the airway when the definitive management is evacuating the hematoma. Let's talk about reality, because Jeremy and I like reality. What are you gonna do? You're gonna call for help. You're gonna manage the airway until the surgeon arrives. And one thing when the situation is dire that you can do is cut the external sutures, the skin sutures, to allow the hematoma to expand into space and decrease that pressure on the trachea. Another complication, hypocalcemia. Classic board question, when does this most likely occur? And the answer is 24 to 48 hours postoperatively. And this will occur if all of the parathyroid glands are removed at the same time. Pneumothorax is a complication, although rare. Remember that the apice of the, of the lungs extend above the clavicle. Most people don't think about that, but it is a rare complication. Postoperative nausea vomiting is also a complication and certainly significant here because of the potential for bleeding in the surgical site. Most of our patients, as we've talked about, are probably younger females who are at greater risk. So administering our antiemetics and maybe even uh, prescribing scopolamine preoperatively that they put on the patch at home is certainly desirable. And then last, we have pain management. Um, I've never had a thyroidectomy, but have, many, have taken care of many patients who have. Um, it's a painful procedure. Imagine having an incision right across your neck. So surgeons will do local anesthetics, narcotics, dexmedetomidine, and then really using uh, multimodal analgesia, such as meloxicam, Tylenol, and also ketamine. Wow, that was a power-packed, concise episode on the management for the surgical procedure thyroidectomy. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass Clinical Edition. Okay, CRNA Nation, that's it for this episode. Remember, Keep ventilating, and we'll catch you on the next episode.
As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.